Welcome to episode 11 of the Wealth and Law podcast. I am Brent Nelson. And as usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass, the inimitable Rachel Sass, the one and only. The one and only. Yeah. Uh, again. <laughs> Rachel, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. We're, uh, we're taking a lot more walks than I used to take. And now it's starting to get, it's starting to warm up a little bit. And so the walks are just getting later and later into the evening, which means it's like darker and darker when I'm taking my walk, which is more and more in the time period when uh, critters who live in the desert and slither are active. So mm-hmm. I yeah. just want I just want you to know that I'm taking my life into my own hands daily <laughs> for this for the sake of recreation. <laughs> I taking these important walks. Yeah. yeah. It's uh you're 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 a lot braver than me. I, I when it when the sun goes down in Arizona this time of year, uh the scorpions are out, so no, definitely no. Um apparently my neighbor saw a rattlesnake the other day, so definitely no. And then just, you know, of course the random coyotes and javelinas and all the other terrifying things that are outside. Just Yeah. <laughs> you're you're sticking close to home. I'm sticking close to home. I um I have a horrible fear of grasshoppers and somewhere around our house lives about a three to four inch grasshopper. So basically my perimeter is my patio and that's about it. And, and, and even that is a stretch at night because that sucker is out there and he's going to get me one of these days. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. This may not be meaningful for a lot of people, but so you're aware of the Palo Verde beetle. Oh gosh. Yes. Terrifying. comes out like in July, as soon as it starts to rain around here in like July, mm-hmm. those are the ones that at night pop out of nowhere and they're like three inches long. Yes. Big black beetles. And that is a little jarring to find mm-hmm. those in the desert. Well, yeah. Well, that, wow. I, I feel a lot better now that we've had this conversation. <laughs> Gotten it all out about the fears tonight. <laughs> yeah, I feel, I feel like I'm brilliant at choosing good places to live in. <laughs> right. <laughs> so for today's episode, we are talking about essentially about probate and trust administrations, but really about like, when a loved one passes away, what do you do? What happens? And I didn't think there'd be anybody better or fun to talk about that topic with than Kristen Yokomoto, who is a partner at Albrecht and Barney in Irvine, California, the beautiful Irvine, California. Now that's a place one would want to live in. And Kristen is a certified specialist in the state of California in trust and probate law. She is a practitioner in the areas of estate planning, trust administration, probate. She happened to go to the University of Arizona. So she actually does have a Tucson connection. Uh, and she's one of my favorite people. So Krista, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Brent and Rachel, for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I want, Kristen, I want to know how after you lived in Tucson, you could have possibly chosen a place like Irvine. Well, because I first went to Monterey, Mexico. Uh-huh. And then San Diego. Uh-huh. And then San Francisco, and then uh-huh. LA, and then Irvine. Okay, okay. So not it, at least it wasn't direct. I'll give it to you. Right, and actually Boise, Idaho was in there too. Wow, that's a that's a big circle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so do you, did I did I do justice to your bio? I, I should give you a chance to correct the record if I got it wrong. Yes. Good. And I 
And I should point out, and I, this maybe goes without saying, but I, I like that we've been able to, and we're able to now with this episode too, to have like people on who really practice this stuff. Like this is not theory. This is stuff that we're doing on a day-to-day basis all the time and dealing with the issues. And, you know, Krista and I were emailing back and forth just before this about an issue like exactly on point with what we're about to talk about. So like, you know, these are, we're talking to people on these episodes, Kristen being no exception, who like are really in the trenches fighting the good fight. And they know these issues very, very well because they're dealing with it all the time. So it's always fun for me to have that conversation. And hopefully that comes out in the episode. I think that's a really good point that you make. I mean, it's just such an important issue when we're talking about family dynamics and wealth and death. Um, They're such important issues. And then you mix them together in terms of planning or administering and a lot happens. Yes, a lot. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And Kristen, you know, you, I think just kind of hit on the key points there. You know, when we've got a probate and trust administration, you've got family dynamics, you've got a a grieving process. Obviously, a loved one has just passed away. It's what in the world do I do? And doesn't matter how complex or comprehensive of a state plan you had, it's still a what is the next step? And, you know, you could have family members in different states, you have property in different states that complicates things. And so it's definitely something that, like you said, Brett, it's kind of have to live and breathe it when you're when you're doing it when you're helping out someone administering the estate so if it's okay with the two of you what I was thinking we can kind of talk about then tonight is first just looking at you know what what kind of documents do we have in front of us when we're doing a probate or trust administration do we have a will no will a trust no trust and kind of what that means in terms of do we have to do a a probate administration or a trust administration or both and then kind of what both of those administrations entail. You know, what, what do we have to do? And does it differ in terms of the probate versus the trust? You know, what, what, what specific things do we have to do in each of those scenarios? And kind of breaking down a little bit of our, our, our to-do list as attorneys. So how does that sound with you guys? I love it. Sounds great. All right. Awesome. Well, and Kristen, like Brent said, you are in California and we're in Arizona. So I'm sure there's going to be differences too. in in Arizona law and California law, you know, everyone, uh, we got to make things different. We can't just make things easy and nice and uniform across 50 states. Where's the fun in that? So I think also we kind of find, you know, we can point out uh, where those differences are. So, you know, let's, let's first kind of jump into kind of what, what documents do we have? You know, the first questions on everyone's mind when you have an administration is who gets what? Who gets what stuff? And what, what, what stuff do we have in front of us? And, you know, as attorneys, we have to always look to the document. We're going to have to read it at some point. So that's really kind of the first place we're going to look in a probate or trust administration. So, you know, let's kind of first say we've got no will. So our decedent has passed away in testate. And so we've kind of got a default estate plan in that's, that's going to happen here now. So um, whoever wants to jump in first on what happens when we have no will. Well, I would add that the first question is usually was there a will? And then the second, and like, what do I get? And then the second question is, how quickly do I get it? And it's almost always this like race to see how quickly. I would agree with you. Yeah. I would agree with you from the child or other supposed beneficiaries viewpoint. And I think our first question is, was there a trust? 
right? Yeah. And we hope the answer is yes. We'd like to see that there was a trust and there, you know, then we kind of go through and go, were all the assets in the trust? And we hope that's a yes too. That kind of is a little easier start, not to say it won't get sticky throughout the process, but hopefully we have the trust. But for us, if we don't have one, then we're going to have to open a probate. Yeah. And I, I, I love that because it's, it's a two-step process as you're describing. First is you have to discover all of the documents. Of course, then somebody has to read the documents. And then the second question is, once you know what documents you have, then based on the ownership of assets, what do you have to do to implement those documents? So if you take the situation where uh, that you kind of teed up there, Rachel, where you've searched for the documents, you can't find them, you know, there's nothing, you've searched the whole house, you've searched all the files, you've looked through the bank deposit box, you've done everything, and you can't find, there's no will, you can't find a trust, then if there truly is nothing, you're not out of luck in the sense that every state, and I, you know, certainly Arizona, I believe California is the same, every state legislature has decided they will write you an estate plan and the estate plan in Arizona and in most states that follow a similar statute to Arizona, which is called the Uniform Probate Code, the estate plan begins by saying, if you pass away and you have a surviving spouse, and basically all of your assets are common between each other, here it's community property, then everything goes to the spouse. If you pass away, and sorry, and all of your kids, if there are kids, are common between you and your spouse, then everything is going to go to your spouse. If you pass away and there are kids between you and your spouse who are not common between you and your spouse, so you know his, hers, or his, his, hers, hers, kids, and the deceased person had their own kids, then the surviving spouse still gets their share of the community property, but then you end up splitting up the community property and the separate property between the kids, 50%, and the spouse, 50%. If there's no surviving spouse, then everything goes to the kids equally. If any child is deceased and they have their own descendants, then that child share goes down to their descendants and you kind of percolate down the generations lineally. If there's nobody who is a descendant lineally from the deceased person, then in our statute, you you first start looking up the chain. So you look up to the parents and if the parents are surviving, then they're the heirs. And so therefore they get the estate. And if there are no parents, then you start looking down the chain from the parents lineally to their descendants. And if there's nobody in that line of descendancy, then you go up to grandparents. And then if there are no grandparents surviving, then down from the grandparents to their lines of descendancy. And if you get to the very bottom and you found no one, and so there are no heirs, then in Arizona, the state of Arizona is your heir, which I always thought was kind of fun because the general rule being that lawyers can't write themselves in to a will. It's unethical. But if you're a legislator, it's fine. But if you're just a regular old Joe lawyer or Jane lawyer, it doesn't work. You, you get sanctioned for that. But this, at least our legislature in Arizona has written themselves into the will should you have no heirs. Right. I mean, our, our process is similar. And just, just listening to you go through that. I mean, I know you practice this every day. And you have probably had those conversations and analysis, but just listening to you now, just, I mean, it can make your head spin, right? And when you actually go to read the statute, it's not so pleasant. Uh, You have to really figure that out. I actually really have a probate right now. We finally filed it. And it's probably the 
most dynamic family that I've, I've seen before because the decedent passed away without a will, unfortunately. There's real property, there's accounts, there's life insurance with no beneficiary, there's retirement with no beneficiary. And she had a niece who lived with her, took care of her. You know, there's a joint account, there's cars that were shared. And that really, the whole family, everybody knows that's who she would want it to go to. But she didn't have well. And so she had four siblings. And the executor is our client, who's one of the siblings. And the other three siblings are deceased. Some had children. Some had children who had died. So imagine drawing this all out. You know, there's about 10 heirs at law. And it's really not what was probably would have been her plan, right? So not only is it complex to figure out who your heirs are with her uh, if you don't have the will, but also it may not, it's oftentimes not what they would have wanted. Yeah, we've had cases, Kristen, I, I'm assuming you guys have had to do the same thing, but we've had cases where figuring out who the heirs are is no simple task, okay? Because we're looking for cousins and second cousins and cousins removed once or twice or three times and they're scattered across the country and you basically but we have had to hire essentially hire a professional genealogist to run these people down and figure out who they all are and until you can do it you're dead in the water there's there's nothing you can do no one is getting anything until you can prove to the court down to the person who all the heirs are so your only recourse, unless there's like literally no money and you, you just can't pay anybody to do it, but your only recourse is to hunt all these people down and to get professional help to do it. And it can take a long time to find them all. And I don't know if this is Murphy's Law, but it seems to be the one most removed or who didn't have contact with Ant at all often causes the most trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. In terms of, you know, what their share is, when are they going to get their share, getting signatures, making claims. I mean, it's just, it's, I don't know how, why that happens, but it seems to. So it's great if somebody has a trust, preferably, and if not, a will. But here in California, our, our process, especially in Orange County, it's really taking a long time, right? So not only do we have perhaps people who the decedent wouldn't have chosen to have their assets, but everything's going to be public record because we have to file with the probate court. So if there's a will, we're filing that will with the court. And, you know, it may not provide for children or something that they don't, wouldn't want public. Um, if there's no will, still it's all going in the court system in terms of all of their assets, all of their debts. And right now we just filed one last week. And because the courts are still taking filings, our hearing is set for September. Wow. We probably, uh, we might, you know, and after the hearing, so, right, we have to get the, the executor or the personal representative appointed by the court, right? So we're going to wait till September. Nobody can access accounts and everything until at least September when we get our hearing. That's assuming all our paperwork is good, right? And that assumes that the clerk, the probate clerk is going to get to our documents and tell us a deficiency in time for our hearing, which they're so backlogged that sometimes we don't get the notes until it's really too late to fix it. And then we have to get a continued date on that hearing. Once we get that hearing, it takes us a while to get our signed order. After that, it's taking months to get our letters. So nobody can act until you get these letters of testamentary, right? Sort of uh, what the 
appointed personal representative will take to the bank, will take to the escrow company, whatever they have to do to marshal and, you know, figure out the assets. But it's a long process. So public record, long process. Yeah, we're thankfully not quite as backed up, but it can still be a very long process. And it's similar for us where the probate file, if you have to do a probate, is absolutely public record. There are certain things that can be filed as confidential documents that you don't have to disclose. So if you know if you have to file something that shows like an account number or social security numbers and things, you can you can file those confidentially, then only parties in the case can gain access to that piece of the file. But everything else is open to public inspection, including the will and including a list of two things. Number one, everyone, if there is a will, who's named as a beneficiary in the will, everybody. And number two, every single heir, even if they're not a beneficiary in the will. So we have to hunt down all of the heirs and list them all out under the theory that if anybody was going to come and say challenge the will, it would be heirs who were shorted in some way in the will. And they would have been the ones under our statute who would have gotten something from the estate if there was no will. So you have to list all those people, uh, ultimately give them notice of the probate. And you can end up bringing, basically bringing into the party or bringing under the tent stakes an enormous number of people who basically have nothing to do with the estate, but because they're heirs, they have to be brought into the proceeding. And so it can be a little bit of a cumbersome process when you have to hunt all those people down. I agree with you. And then also creditors. Here in California, you have to publish a notice in an approved publication. And also that's for in case there's any unknown creditors. And then if there are known creditors, uh, we have to notify them. And then they can submit a claim within a certain period of time. But that's all going to go through the court system too. Yeah. Let me maybe make two comments then. This is perhaps skipping back just a little bit topically to something that you raised, Rachel, which was the idea of upfront, what do you do with the documents? So if there is a will, yes, you do have to read the will to see who benefits in the will. But if there are deficiencies in the will, say the will doesn't cover all of the assets for some reason because it's poorly drafted or it's invalid in some way, then those issues ultimately are determined in the court. And you're really not able to proceed until those kinds of issues are fixed or at least clarified by a judge because the person who's going to be appointed to then stand in the shoes of the deceased person, the personal representative or the executor, they're looking to the documents to figure out the instructions about how they're supposed to distribute the estate. And if the will is unclear on a point or doesn't cover all the assets in some way, they really can't operate in good faith and distribute the estate and tells the court tells them what to do. And that's part of the purpose for the probate proceedings and the court's involvement is so that the court can act as the final say on how you're supposed to read the document, how you're supposed to understand it, if the document is valid, et cetera, so that the personal representative or the executor doesn't have to guess at those things. And then, of course, guess wrong and get sued by a beneficiary who's aggrieved by what just happened. And then the second thing is, if there is a trust, you have to do kind of a similar analysis of now read through the trust, see 
what assets does it cover or not cover? Sometimes a trust could exclude assets. Again, I think if it's not well drafted, it would do that. And, and then figure out, do if there's a will and a trust, do the two documents actually work together? And if somebody like Kristen did the documents, then the answer would be yes, they do work together. But if somebody maybe went to a practitioner who's really not very well versed in this area, or they tried to do it themselves, sometimes the answer is they don't. They don't fit together. And so you can end up having a mismatch and even contradictory language between the will and the trust that causes issues that, again, ultimately you are going to have resolved through the court, maybe through a private agreement among trust beneficiaries, but very often through the probate court with a judge. I agree with you. Yeah, that's a really good point to make, Brent. And I think, you know, it's, it's a good distinction to kind of point out now that it's not really a, you know, you're only going to take a one path. You know, that path can be really twisty and turning depending on exactly what those documents said. Like you said, if, if the will doesn't cover everything, then you might be probating part of the will according to what it says. And then if it left things out, those items might have to pass you know, via the intestate succession, as you're saying, going kind of down the lineal descendants, figuring out who the heirs are. If you've got the trust document, that only also does a portion of the documents. And then there's things not funded into the trust. You've got multiple documents. And then again, if you've got contradictory opinions or contradictory provisions in the documents, that complicates it. And I think that really hits on Kristen's point that it's not going to be a fast process, unfortunately. Well, you know, when someone passes away, you know, some people are quick to, okay, let's get this wrapped up. Um, you know, we know what mom really wanted and we know she wanted it to go this way. It's, it's not going to be that quick fix. And if there are ambiguities, you know, you may have to petition the court. And in today's times with COVID-19, that may take quite a bit longer than we normally expect. And I think what you asked in the beginning, Rachel, is really important in terms of the documents. And I know so many people, as I mentioned, you know, our first question is, was there trust? No. Was there will? No. Right? We just kind of figure out. But if there is a trust, we also want to see what other kind of documents that there are, like a pour over will, as Brent just mentioned, but also to see if there's like a marital property agreement. You know, sometimes we do those and it has a huge impact on, on the distribution. It could if we have a married couple. So I always wonder what will happen if, you know, someone else is administering our firm's documents, are they going to ask for all of the documents? So I think it's really important to just make sure you get a full picture of all documents. Yeah. And let me throw one other thing at you, Christine, because you brought this up. I don't know if you intended to or not, but you brought this up. What about non-probate assets like retirement accounts, life insurance? I, I know I'm missing some in there. What, what do you, what about those? Well, I think it, uh, you know, I, when we, you know, in terms of inventory, right, if you're looking at, so what are our documents, and then we're going to be looking at what's our inventory, right, in terms of, are we talking about a house, are we talking about an account, are we talking about a checking account that was in the individual's name or is joint, so the next step after we have, whether we're going to probate or the administration, we're going to be looking at assets and beneficiaries, right, so Certain ones are going to require different types of things when it comes to retirement and life insurance that you just mentioned. Those are 
oftentimes going to be owned by the decedent, but they could be in some kind of irrevocable trust for life insurance, but we're going to be looking at the beneficiary. We're going to look at ownership to see if we have to file a federal estate tax uh, return, but we're also going to be really importantly looking at who's the beneficiary. And we sometimes have a trust, but they do have a retirement or life insurance, and they didn't name a beneficiary. So guess what? We're going to open a probate for those assets. Yeah. And that's what we see too, is if you have an account that requires a named beneficiary like life insurance or, you know, your typical individual retirement accounts or IRAs or 401ks, the default typically under the contractual arrangement between you and the financial institution or the insurance is that it's payable to your estate. Every now and then we find uh, employer-sponsored plans where the plan documents will actually name family members as the default beneficiaries. So you, but you don't really know until you pull up, you get a copy of the plan documents and like actually read through them word for word to see like what happens if you didn't name a designated beneficiary. But like nine times out of 10, that is not the case. And if you don't name a beneficiary, your beneficiary is your estate and estates need probate. So then you have to do a probate. The other thing that we see, Kristen, I don't know if this is the same feeling for you, but it's a little bit the bane of my existence, which is somebody does a great estate plan as far as the documents go. Like they went to somebody who knows what they're doing. They got great documents and then they have a life insurance policy or say a deferred annuity or an IRA and they name beneficiaries a long, long time before they did the estate plan that are totally different from the beneficiaries in the estate plan. And you have like assets that are on totally separate paths, you know, assets that go under the estate planning documents to one group of people, and then assets that go under the beneficiary designations to a separate group of people, just because nobody tied the two together and made them harmonious. I agree. We do see that. And that's where you're kind of going down. You're analyzing everything. You're charting everything. And you go, uh-oh, <laughs> right? Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> that's not what we would have wanted to see because they didn't either, you know, update it with their financial advisor or they didn't go through all the funding or they didn't read our letter or do what we told them to do. Hopefully we told them to, you know, the lawyer said, hey, look at all these, these kinds of questions once you have your trust. So, yeah. The other thing that I should mention, because you and I were talking about it a little bit earlier before this call started in terms of if we don't have a trust, we may or may not be going to a full probate, right? It kind of depends on what assets we find and what the value of those assets are. So here in California, we could have somebody who doesn't have a trust, doesn't have a will, but they had a bank account that was less than $166,250. So there's an affidavit that we can prepare here to help help them get access to that account without having to go to probate. And that's the same kind of thing, whether we do have a trust, but that account was not in the trust, if it's still less than that dollar amount, we can, you know, we have a, another way to get it. And for real property here in California, if it's valued less than $50,000, so that's typically going to be raw land somewhere, it, we don't have to go through a full probate. It's a different kind of affidavit that we have to go through the court, but it's still going to be a lot quicker process. Yeah, absolutely. We have a similar process here in Arizona. Our, our numbers are slightly different from Californians. So we have a small estate affidavit where if your personal property is valued under $75,000, then you can transfer that through the uh, affidavit 
or if you've got real estate that's valued under $100,000, less any encumbrances, then you could also pass that through the use of the affidavit. And like you said, it's a lot faster process than having to go through the entire probate process for sure. So let me throw one other little twist on that. Kristen, you mentioned this idea of number one, you know, we're going to find the documents. Number two, of course, we're going to read the documents to see what they say. And then number three, we're going to start inventorying all of the assets to figure out what is it that we have here? What are the values for these reasons that you and Rachel are mentioning? Who are the beneficiaries named under beneficiary designations? But then to find out where are the assets? Because I could have someone who passes away in Arizona, but say they own real estate in California. And in that instance, their California real estate is going to be governed by the California rules, not the Arizona rules. And you can end up with an estate that now crosses borders and has to play by the rules of every jurisdiction in which the assets are located. And that can obviously add a little bit of complexity because every state kind of does things a little bit their own way. And the timing can be totally different as you're describing especially in the probate processes in various states. They're just, they don't operate the same way. They don't operate with the same levels of efficiency or they're just overloaded in some states and not so much in other states. And so having a trust like you're describing that can hold the assets eliminates that particular issue very well because then the trust holds the assets. You don't have to do probate. So you're not subject to dancing the probate dance in two different jurisdictions or three different jurisdictions. And it gets even worse when you have uh, assets across international borders. I was smiling listening to you because, Brett, you and I met because of an international organization, right? And I was just thinking, like, you're so right when we have to do sister states and open a probate here and then a probate there and figure that out. And then, you know, they have to get counsel there. Even to transfer a grantee that is in the trust, right? We still need out-of-state counsel because we can't do an Arizona deed or a Colorado deed. But what happens when we're dealing with another country? That's even more. And, you know, listening to both of you, even though I practice this every day and we're ta- what we're talking about is, is, is very, very, very important, but a little basic, right? We, we can get into so many different complexities when it comes to estate planning and administration. But I just, it just is hitting home, even for me, how important it is that everybody, it doesn't matter if you have a lot, a little, if you have minor children, if you don't have children, to consult with a professional, you know, uh, see what your options are, see what's out there. And then even just having the documents is not enough, right? To go the step further to communicate your assets and ownership and beneficiaries, because I mean, all of this can just be so sticky later on for everybody else and take so much time and effort and expense. So it just really puts a light on it. Yeah, absolutely. Can't agree with you more on that one. I like to t- I like to tell people this somewhat facetiously, but I like to tell people who are clients that in the especially in the kind of basic estate planning that doesn't involve any sort of tax planning that the documents that we're going to do for them are pretty much the same documents that nine out of ten estate planning lawyers would do for them because the law forces you to go in a particular direction and everybody's following the same law so it's the same set of rules and so it really pushes you in one particular direction. So therefore you end up with an estate plan that looks very similar 
in you know one building to the next, you know, one practitioner to the next. The value add is really the consultation and the figuring out how to put the pieces together, not just doc, not not just doing the documents, but putting the pieces together, like like you're describing. I agree. Well, Kristen, you've mentioned quite a few things. Saying Brent, you know, we've talked about when you have a, a probate and a trust administration. Obviously, we're looking at the documents, we're looking at the assets, titling, finding our beneficiaries, our heirs. So we've got a fiduciary appointed. Either we're going through the probate process and getting a personal representative appointed by the court. If we've got a trust administration, luckily we've got our trustee, but we might also have to do that supplemental probate in addition to it if we've got issues. Then, you know, you've touched on the inventory, making sure we figure out where are the assets, what are they. Um, One thing I think it's important to note too is we need to know how much everything is. So getting appraisals. I think that kind of, a lot of people don't realize that. They think, oh, we just got a house, we got the bank account, but we really got to look at the date of death appraisals to determine just how much are we dealing with in this estate. And, you know, kind of from there, um, like you mentioned, Kristen, then we're going to go deal with creditors and there's a huge process with that. So, you know, do you guys kind of want to jump in on kind of what your next steps are, then how we, how we're talking to the creditors, trying to determine what's a valid claim, what we have to pay in a probate or a trust administration and kind of go from there. Well, I can speak maybe just a little bit. Well, actually, let me take one slight step back and clarify one piece, which is like, what is a probate? Because I get asked it a lot because not everybody's familiar with it. And actually, I think even lawyers as a general species don't understand it that well because it is a little bit nuanced. And the, the probate process is inherently two-step process. So number one, the court is determining with finality whether the person died with a will. And if so, which will is the correct will? And if not, which individuals are the correct heirs of the estate? So that's the first determination. And then the second piece is once the court makes that determination, the court is appointing a personal representative or an executor who is the only person in the world who has the authority to act on behalf of the estate and to stand in the shoes of the deceased person. And frankly, until that until the court makes that appointment, no one really has that authority because it's a court appointment. And so you can't appoint yourself. You're not appointed in the, the will itself. You're only nominated in the will. And even then your nomination can become a suggestion if there's something you know untoward about your character. It's all ultimately up to the court to decide who will be appointed into that position. And no one has that authority until the court grants it to them. That's ultimately what a probate at least in the in the initial stages of the probate, that's what the probate is. So as far as creditors go, at least in our procedures, Kristen, I'd be, I'd be curious to hear about California, but in our procedures, the statutes that govern creditors basically make the estate administration, the probate administration, like a bankruptcy for dead people. That we're, we have to publish notice to all the unknown creditors, we have to give notice to the known creditors. Those notices give the creditors a, a set amount of time in which to make a claim against the estate, that is to assert against the estate that they're owed money and to, to state the basis upon which they're making that claim. And if they do not make the claim, 
they have no right to be paid from the estate. They might get paid because somebody feels obligated to pay them out of the goodness of their heart, but there's zero legal obligation to make that payment. And I always tell my clients never to make that payment because they're not obligated to do it. And frankly, if they do make the payment and my client is the executor or personal representative, they are violating their duties under the law by making a payment to a creditor who never made a timely claim that is an allowable claim under the statute. And so that process is meant to force issues into a procedure that will A, ferret them out and B, deal with them efficiently because even though probates can take a long time to administer from start to finish, there is a general goal of efficiency and getting things done with finality at some point. Right. That's the same here. And this is not what we're talking about, but this comes up quite a bit. So I just want to raise if you are um, helping a creditor or you, you know, you are owed money from somebody who you can tell how to trust, either you can tell from their grant deed or, or, or something else, or if they are not in probate, so there's no process for them to follow, just like what you described, the creditor is going to have to actually open the probate. So that comes up a lot for us. Yeah. It's the same for us. A creditor can open up a probate and the way that our statutes read, in fact, if a creditor wants to get paid for most of the reasons that I was just describing, they must open up a probate. Otherwise, they do not have an ability to assert a claim against the estate because you can only assert that claim to the personal representative or the executor. And until that person is appointed, you have nobody to submit the claim to. And so if you can't submit a claim, you have no right to get paid out of the estate. And so a lot of creditors, of course, don't want to spend the money. But if the, if the dollars are big enough, I've seen creditors open up probates for the sole purpose of asserting a claim against the estate that they can then get paid. I agree. And it sometimes happens when there's an ongoing litigation and the defendant dies. And there's a one year in California statute for the creditor to do something about it. And so we usually get pulled in on like day 360 and have to like act really quickly. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So it's somewhat similar for us. Uh, We have a two year limitation period, but you do, you do have to substitute the estate as a party in an ongoing litigation. Of course, you can't substitute just an estate because an estate is just property. That's not a living, breathing person. They can't be a party to a lawsuit. So the only way to substitute the estate into an ongoing litigation is to have the court appoint a personal representative through opening up a probate, which the creditor may have to do on their own. So they have a party to litigate against. Right. And it kind of goes to the assets and values and what Rachel had raised in terms of, you know, what are we doing once we get the assets? How are we going to value them? And I suggest uh, working on those data death values right away. As soon as we get access to the statements. if we are going through a probate, it's going to be a little bit longer for our personal representative to be able to get access to the bank, to get access to statements. But if we have a trust and we get the trustee in there pretty quickly with a death certificate in our documentation and we do a trust certification, um, that and that's a document that the banks and, and third parties must rely on in California pursuant to a statute. They have to believe that that is the trustee and that person is authorized to act. Uh, there could even be penalties if the institution doesn't and is causing 
you know, harm to the estate, then once they get access, they can get us the bank statement, right, for the accounts, for the bank account, savings account, investment accounts. For life insurance, that might take a lot of paperwork before we're able to, you know, figure out what the payout's going to be. Uh, same thing with retirement accounts, getting access and getting statements. And then with, with respect to real property, we're going to want appraisals. And sometimes people say, well, what kind of appraisal and how much do I have to spend? And I think that can vary. If we have a pretty small estate and we are not even close to the federal tax exemption, which I'm sure we'll touch upon, and we don't have to file a state tax return and there's no state taxes due, we might be able to do a broker's price opinion in terms of valuing the estate, but that's we don't recommend that. We would prefer the trustee to go and get a formal appraisal, and that might cost for a residential uh, house uh, maybe 500 to 750. For a commercial building, of course, it's going to be more, but we we'd rather have that appraisal because number one, if there's more than one beneficiary it's going to be important when we add up all the assets and values and we go to distribute, right? It's also going to be important because that will set the basis of those assets for the beneficiary. So it's going to help out that beneficiary when they go to do their tax returns if they sell it in the future, you know. So we really like to go formal on all our appraisals. And then with respect to the accounts, we really like to determine date of death value. But just like we will sometimes take a broker's price opinion, we might take the month end statement. If doing, you know, running the exact date of death is going to cost us thousands of dollars, it, you know, we, but we have to judge that based upon the complexity of the estate and, you know, the family situation, the beneficiaries. What, one, uh, maybe one addition to that is usually for valuations of stocks and bonds that are traded, not, not mutual funds. We will ask the financial institution or the broker to get us an estate tax valuation report, which almost all of them have the ability in their systems to produce. And it's in that estate tax valuation report, it gives us the average between the high and low trading values on the date of death. And that average number is like the technical tax number you're supposed to have for estate tax purposes. And then that kind of bleeds into the income tax effects as well. And because it's usually as easy as asking for it and sometimes asking and then educating the broker on the fact that these things exist and they can in fact get them from Schwab or Fidelity, et cetera. Um, it's fairly easy to run those down. It doesn't take a lot of cost. It doesn't even require the lawyers to be involved to ask for it as long as the client knows what it is they're supposed to say to the broker to get the valuation report. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. And so I guess could go back to Rachel's um, initial question about gathering values. I think it depends. You look at the assets, right? And then if it's accounts, as you had just mentioned, you can get the exact date of death. If not, sometimes we will use the month end if it's, if it's small. So can I jump in then and just say a word or two about the taxes and I don't want to drag, get this dragged too far into the muck on the taxes, but Kristen brought this up and it's like exactly on point and you always have to ask the question. And so first, once somebody has died, your, your initial thought is usually estate taxes. And in this case, I'm talking about federal estate taxes 
right now, today, the estate tax exemption being the amount of value of assets you can die owning before you pay estate tax is 11.58 million per person. And that's assuming that they didn't have a pre-deceasing spouse who didn't use up all their exemption because in that case, the surviving spouse can quote, kind of inherit the predeceasing spouse's unused exemption amount. That 11.58 million number can go up even higher. But as a general proposition, it's 11.58 million. It's an inflation adjusted number. That's why it's a weird number. And so periodically every year or two, it gets adjusted up right now. It will be divided in half in 2026 to some number that is the equivalent of $5 million indexed for inflation beginning in 2010. And so we don't know what that number will be. I have heard people guessing that it will be somewhere around six and a half million. I have no reason to believe that they're wrong, but nobody really knows. But you have to kind of then weigh or judge the value of the inventory against that number, because if you're close to that number or you're over that number, you're going to file an estate tax return. If you're close to the number, but you're under, you might file the estate tax return anyways, because filing the return gives you some finality. If you have hard to value assets like some real estate interests or say partnership interests, you might file the return anyways, even if you're under the exemption, because you want some finality on the values and you get it by filing the tax return. If you're over the number, you're definitely going to file an estate tax return because the personal representative is obligated by law to do so and obligated by law to pay the tax. And then the values that are, are the date of death values that end up on this estate tax return, they set the income tax basis for all of the assets that basically aren't retirement assets or annuities that the beneficiaries then receive and the income tax basis being the number you use to determine whether you have a gain or a loss when later on you sell the asset or the number you use to figure out if you if you can and then in, in what amount you take depreciation deductions for the asset. And so it's a really important number and figuring out what it is and sometimes locking it in with finality by filing an estate tax return even when one isn't due can be a very, very valuable thing, especially if someone is gonna be selling the assets in the future. Right. And to your point, too, in terms of getting assets and values, we are definitely looking at all these date of death values. Here in California, in terms of timing, we want uh, our executor or trustee to start working on these as soon as possible since they have access. I want to mention here in California, we also have a required notice uh, that needs to go out to beneficiaries and heirs So, if we have a trust. And that notice is basically to every person who's going to receive a distribution in the trust, as well as to heirs. So I, you know, you could have a son who is specifically disinherited in the trust. That person is going to get notice. So this notice here in California, we refer to it as the 120-day notice. We want to get the death certificate. We want to get them appointed as trustee as soon as possible so we can get those notices out. We can send that notice. We just follow the statute. It tells us exactly what we have to say in that notice, basically that someone died. We now have an irrevocable trust. We list the place of administration. And if we are going to include a copy of the trust, then they have 120 days. The beneficiaries or heirs have 120 days to contest to file an action. And then we start going on a different route if they do, or they have a longer period of time potentially if we don't include a copy of the trust. 
So if we don't include a copy of the trust, they can request one up to the 120 days, and then they'll get another additional 60 days. So it could be up to 180 days. And during that, so we want to get that going to start the clock running. And during that time, that gives us about four months to start looking for the assets and the values. When we're through that period, we would like it to be four months in a day, but it's oftentimes much longer, maybe even up to a year. But we are going to take a second look at the assets now and their values, right? So, for example, we might have had a bank account and now we've, or a couple of them, and now we've consolidated them into a bank account in what we call the administrative trust. We might have had a house that we sold. So, after all of this is done and creditors have been taken care of and the contest period has finished and we're now, we have a really good handle on all the assets and all the, you know, who gets what or what percentages, then we're going to go and get another look at the then values in order to do our distribution. And we have, we have similar rules with respect to trusts and making distributions or making uh, notices to beneficiaries and the, the ability to use those notices to reduce the amount of time that beneficiaries have to challenge a revocable trust. Our time periods are a little bit different, but the concepts are basically the same, where if you give certain types of notices, the beneficiaries will have a longer period of time to challenge the trust in in the instance of a revocable trust that the deceased person created. And if you give a different type of notice, then they have a shorter amount of time. And what notice you give is really a a decision that's up to the trustee. Uh, We usually like to chop the time limit down as much as we can. So we give the notice that chops the time limit down because we're looking for some efficiency and we're trying to get some finality because as I was mentioning, until you have finality about the trust document and which one's the final one and what trust document then is the final set of instructions to the trustee, the trustee really is in a precarious situation because if they take an action and it turns out later that they did the wrong thing, then they're going to have to, if they're not held accountable for it, which they might be insulated from being accountable if they relied on a prior document, they're at least going to be put through a lot of pain and probably some, some difficult court proceedings to get to a remedy that could have been avoided by just waiting until we have finality on the documents through this notice procedure. So it's, it's similar to what you're describing in California. But for us, the ultimate goal is we just want to get to a final answer on the documents as soon as we can. And then once we have that final answer, we know what the script is going forward. This can be exhausting, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's, in the meantime, not only are there all these processes and procedures and notices and deadlines and all this stuff for the lawyers to do, the CPAs to do, for the financial advisors to do, for the clients to do, you know, they're also, as Rachel mentioned in the very beginning of this, it's all because somebody died. And so there's a grieving process. All of these family relationship issues start popping up, right? I mean, it's just such an important part of everything. So um, I so appreciate all your thoughts and um, having this conversation, the opportunity to have this conversation, because it really makes me realize myself that this isn't just a job that we do every day. You know, this really is something that impacts families. Yeah, you just hit the nail on the head right there, Kristen. You really did. And it's like you said, there's 
there's so much more. It's, it's exhausting for everyone who's involved and, and especially the family members who, you know, just, it, this is, this doesn't come natural to them, you know, at least, you know, with, like you said, for us, this is a job. We kind of understand it's a long process. It can be a grueling process. There's many hoops we have to jump through just to get to the next step. But for family members, they might not understand it. And they're just wondering why in the world is this taking so long? Why do we have to do this extra step? And why is this getting so much more expensive? But it really is, you have to check off every single box before you can kind of go on to the next step. And, you know, you and Brent have kind of mentioned gone through, you know, so far all these different steps. We've gone through taxes already where we've got the appraisal. So now we're kind of, we've created this accounting. We've, we've got notices to beneficiaries. If we have a trust administration going on, making sure that we comply with whatever state statute. So, I mean, are, are we finally to the distribution guys? Like let, where, where are we at now at this point? Tell me when we can actually make a distribution to our beneficiaries. Yeah, I think we I think we finally made it. We finally everybody everybody's favorite day has finally come. It almost goes back to the first step. You you look at the document and you read the document and, and under normal circumstances, I should say, uh, when it's a well-drafted document like something that Kristen would do, the document will tell you exactly how to make the distributions to whom and in what way with what it in you know, what restrictions if any and then the job of the trustee, if there's a trust, or the job of the executor, if it's if there's a will and a probate, is just to follow those instructions and follow them as closely as, as they can. And once they've done it, then usually, although it may require a little bit of back and forth between the trustee or executor on one hand and the beneficiary on the other hand, usually once the once the trustee or executor makes that distribution, it's kind of like that's it. There's not a lot more for them to do with respect to that distributed asset. Like once the it's out and it's in the beneficiary's hands, then it's kind of, the burden is on the beneficiary to do the thing that they're supposed to do or they feel is right with that asset. And once you've distributed everything out, then the trust, number one, the trust terminates because it now has no assets and trusts have to have assets to exist. And they just sort of end. There's, at least for us, that's it. There's no fancy, there's no ceremony or anything. There's nothing to be done. They did, the trust just, ends. And in a probate, you basically tell the court, we have distributed all the assets and please close your file. And the court goes ahead and closes their file. And that's the end of the probate, basically. I agree. I think sometimes when we get to the distribution stage, uh, it could go very smoothly. We tend to, if it's of course going through the probate, we're going to have to file a, a final petition with the court with all the then assets and who's getting what, and the court's going to have to approve our final petition and uh, before our executor can give anything to anyone or distribute things out. When we're doing our trust administration, we can we might be deciding who's getting what. So if we have an account for a million dollars and a house for a million dollars, we don't necessarily have to go 50-50 on both assets. Um, I find oftentimes it is a child who is living in the house or a child who wants the house and the sibling doesn't want it and they are they can't agree though, you know, on how they're going to divide it up. In California here, we also have property reassessment uh, for property taxes. 
We have some available exclusions for reassessment. So if mom and dad purchased it at, you know, 500000 and now it's worth a million or more, the property taxes would be a lot more if we weren't able to seek an exclusion from reassessment. So that can come up if we're trying to, you know, one child wants a property and somebody else wants an account, but there's not enough money, those kinds of issues can come up. So I would say usually it goes pretty smoothly on our distribution, but it definitely takes a lot of time and effort, and especially the more beneficiaries that we have. So we always do an agreement. We want our beneficiaries either to receive their statutory right to an accounting, which could take a lot of time, but sometimes they want that, or to waive that. And we want them to see all of the date of death assets and values on an exhibit. We want them to see all of the data distribution assets and values on another exhibit. And then on the next exhibit, we want them to see what everybody's getting. And then we have everybody sign off on it before we do any transfer. Yeah, that's a good point. So, and I guess I, I kind of skipped a step, which is usually until we know that we have ferreted out every issue between the parties, any fight between the parties about how things are supposed to be done, and we have everybody agreeing on the way that we're going to do things, we do not make a final distribution. And in a probate, sometimes that requires court action. Of course, in a, in a trust administration, sometimes it requires court inter- intervention too. But Basically, when I'm, when I'm representing the executor or the trustee, until we're to a point where we have run down and taken care of every single issue, there's not going to be a final distribution because it really, it opens up, ultimately opens up the trustee or the executor to potential liability in the future. And it leaves open questions hanging that shouldn't be there. You know, once the probate is done, once the trust administration is done, there should not be any lingering, at least legal questions. That's the last thing that you want. There can still be hurt feelings and there can still be family strife and lawyers are not necessarily great at fixing those issues. But at least on the legal side of things, there should not be lingering issues once you've made a final distribution. I agree. And those distributions can be it could be another step that the our trustee, if we're dealing with the trust, is going to say, oh that's still a lot of work, and this is where it can get a little sticky. In probate, everything's going to go outright. And that's another reason why people might want to consider doing a trust, right? Because they might not want their 18-year-old to get a million dollars, right? So when we're ready to distribute and we're at the point where Brent made a really good point that, you know, nothing is going to expose our trustee, then we need to see what the document requires. Are these outright distributions? Are these distributions going to go into one common trust for the three children until they're a certain age? Or is each beneficiary going to get their own subtrust? And by that, I mean it's going to have its own separate tax ID and the assets will go into this separate trust for the beneficiary. And there'll be rules that govern how that subtrust will be handled throughout that beneficiary's lifetime or at least until a certain age. So that's also another important step when we go to when we're ready to distribute. Yeah, absolutely. I think you just kind of hit that last point right there, Kristen, which is, yeah, if you've got a trust and, you know, we're, we're in that final, final stages, we're about to make the distributions and you may have to divide the trust depending on what that document says. If we just had one spouse 
pass away. Now we might have a survivor's trust. We might have a, a decedent's trust that's going to be set up. And so there may be just a few extra steps there on, you know, kind of dividing and distributing the property into there before then it's actually distributed to our beneficiaries. So it's even that final distribution step, even though we've gone all that way, even that step has its own little subset of steps there. But it's like you said, it's a long process, but we're, it's, it's going to get there. That's why you need Kristen. She and knows Brent what to do. Oh, you're nice. <laughs> <laughs> you're nice. No, I thank you again so much for the invitation. I so enjoyed this. I really, really did. It's always good to take a step back from our everyday work and really think about what it is that we're doing and it's, uh, and the importance of it. And the, you know, I always say a trust, you know, it can be so powerful and it can also cause so much trouble, you know? So it's, uh, it's real, it's, and it really impacts people's lives. Well, we very much appreciate you, Kristen, and appreciate you taking time to chat about this with us. We obviously were, we feel very passionate about it and we can tell that you very, feel very passionately about it as well. And so we can't thank you enough for lending your expertise and knowledge. Mm -hmm.